morning, everybody. Welcome to um, welcome to Redemption Church. Uh, my name is Reggie, and this morning uh, we will be continuing through the book of Amos over the last several weeks and for the next coming months uh, here at Redemption. We'll be moving through some minor prophets, um, and we've been in Amos for a few weeks now. And uh, if if you've been reading along, or if you've been here from week to week, you know how difficult of a book Amos is. Uh, if you just pick up Amos and read it, void of the the rest of the context of Scripture, it's just it's just it doesn't seem like there's a lot of goodness there. But what we have been able to see as we move through Amos is um, God's continual um, pursuit of the fact that he is holy, that he wants his people to be holy, and that he has a plan and a purpose for his people. And as we've moved through Amos, it's allowed us to point to Jesus uh, in brand new ways, uh, ways we've heard before, but uh, maybe from a different context in the Old Testament. And so I think it's been really good for us to sort of just dive in, even though it might be difficult at times. So this morning specifically, we're looking at Amos chapter 7. There's about 17 verses. I'm going to read those for us here. Um, it's going to take a minute to read them all. Um, but let's, let's turn there if you have your Bibles. Uh, and let's look at Amos chapter 7. And this is what God's Word says. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. And this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. And you yourself shall die in an unclean land. 
and Israel shall, shall surely go into exile away from its land. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. God, Amos 7 contains words that are hard to hear and hard to read and hard to fathom and hard to understand. But God, as we dive into Amos chapter 7, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have for us. God, I pray uh, completely that you would move me out of the way and that in this place, Jesus would be lifted high. God, I pray that we would hear from you and that we would be drawn to you because of the work of your son, Jesus. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. So I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would be changed because of Jesus. And God, we ask all this in the precious name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. This is going to sound strange, but stay with me for a moment. I really like to eat plain Ruffles potato chips with ketchup, right? And when I tell people that, or when someone sees me eating potato chips with ketchup, there's always a reaction. The reaction is, that's disgusting, I can't believe you do that, or, eh, it kind of makes sense because like fries, but there's always a reaction. If I told you the larger, larger context for why I do this, you'd see there's more to the story though. Uh, on Christmas Eve of 1983, um, I was eight years old and my father died suddenly and tragically and my mother was hospitalized for several days. I lived on this farm near a place called Greenwood, South Carolina, which is not far from here. And my parents at the time were pretty estranged from their families. And so there were, there were no close family members nearby. And so um, I didn't really have anywhere to go or anywhere to stay uh, after these terrible events occurred. And so I ended up staying with some other folks who, who lived near our farm right down the road. And uh, I'm not sure exactly when or how they introduced me to the idea of eating potato chips with ketchup, but that's where it started in the days that I stayed with them. And, um, and it was obviously a pretty emotional, pretty weird, pretty formative time in my life. And I really only remember a couple of things about those days. One is waking up on Christmas morning at a stranger's house. Um, and, and secondly, learning to eat potato chips with ketchup. And even though it might seem strange to everyone else, every time I eat potato chips with ketchup, it's bigger than the act. For me, there's a connection to something bigger. There's a larger story. There's a connection to a pretty formative event in my life. And so it probably doesn't make sense to anyone else, but it makes sense to me. And to fully grasp everything about Amos 7, We've got to understand that the book of Amos, and specifically what Amos is talking about in Amos chapter 7, is connected to a much bigger story. There's a connection to more. It's not just about three visions that Amos saw that are a little weird. It's not about this confrontation with this illegitimate priest that ends with some very harsh words. It's about the larger redemptive story of the Bible it's about God setting apart a group, of, a group of people to be his own for his purposes, to be a blessing to the nations, to be holy 
like he is holy. If you just go back and look at the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, we see that God is the creator of everything. That God had a redemptive plan for his people and for the world from the very beginning. That God set apart a person and a family and eventually an entire group of people to be his own. He called Abraham to leave his, own, his home and go to the promised land. And from Abraham grew this entire nation. And that even though those people ended up being enslaved in Egypt, God redeemed them and rescued them. And when God brought them out of Egypt, he gave them a certain way of living, a certain way of being that was intended to set them apart as holy and unique, like God is holy. That they might be a blessing to the nations, that they might reflect the glory of God to the world. And so God has something to say to them about the food that they ate. God had something to say to them about the way they worshiped. God had something to say to them about the way they lived in community with one another. God had something to say to them about the way they lived in community with others. God had something to say to them about the way they worked and rested, and every part of life was meant for them to be set apart as unique and holy, like God is holy. And all that God was asking them to do the laws he had given them, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt, it was all based around the fact that God was their redeemer, that God had rescued them, that God had acted on their behalf. In the Ten Commandments, as we see them in Exodus chapter 20, God starts giving the Ten Commandments sort of the the basis for the covenant that God made with his people when they came out of Egypt. He begins the Ten Commandments with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The the basis for the Ten Commandments was God saying, I have rescued you and redeemed you. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11, this is a little longer, but we get a, a, a bigger picture of the same thing. Let me read this for you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall, therefore, be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So even there in Deuteronomy, in this much larger passage, we see that God took his people, set them apart, intended them to live a certain way because he was their redeemer and because they were to reflect his glory to the world and to be a blessing to the nations. And their response, the way they were to live, their keeping of this covenant was all based on the fact that God was their redeemer and God had set them apart. And so we get to Amos chapter 7. 
and God's people have completely and utterly abandoned the covenant that God has made with them. They are not living in response to God as their redeemer. They are not worshiping like God laid out in the, in the, in the covenant. They've created their own ceremonial religion. They are willingly worshiping idols. They are not living in community with one another the way that God intended. Amos 7 tells us, I mean, Amos tells us all about how they are oppressing one another and stacking injustice upon impression, upon impression, oppression and sin. They're using one another and they've forsaken God and worshiped idols and they're being blessing, blessings to no one. And so Amos comes along to deliver this message of woe and judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. And in chapter 7, the overall big idea we need to grasp from what we read a minute ago is this. God will judge those who call themselves by his name, those who claim to be his people. And so we have these visions that Amos sees, that God gives him. In Amos 1 through 3, in, in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, Amos has this vision about a swarm of locusts coming to eat the latter growth of the harvest. What that means is probably um, the, the wheat crop that would have been harvested sometime after the barley crop or some other crops. And the vision takes place after the king has gotten his share for his household, his tax of the first fruits. And so everyone else in society would have, would have been affected by this swarm of locusts. From the top to bottom, everybody would have suffered a lack of food. There would have been starvation and destruction. And Amos cries out for these people. He intercedes for them because he realizes how terrible this judgment would be. And God says, it shall not be this way. Notice how when Amos prays, he says this about Jacob, about Israel. He is so small. That's certainly not how they thought of themselves, if you remember back to chapter 6. But Amos has a better understanding of the situation. In verses 4 through 6, Amos has this vision of a fire so great that it destroys the land and consumes the water of the deep. And again, Amos cries out to God and says, God, please cease from this destruction. Amos isn't like Jonah, where we were before we got to Amos. He doesn't want to see their destruction. He wants to see them repent and turn and be saved. And so he intercedes for them, and God says, it shall not be. And then we get to verses 7 through 9. We get a completely different kind of vision. It's not a vision of utter destruction. It's a vision of testing and judgment. And I think it actually ends up being far worse than the first two visions. The, the third vision is of God standing beside a wall built with a plumb line while holding a plumb line in his hand. And a plumb line is simply a string with a, weight and with a weight fastened to the end of it such that it hangs straight down. And if you were to place a plumb line beside a wall and allowed it to hang down freely, it would be apparent whether or not that wall was upright or true or, or vertically level. It will show you if the wall is leaning and ultimately in danger of falling over. It's a tool to test the uprightness, the trueness of a structure. 
several years ago, um, I moved, I, Amy and I moved into the house that we live in now with our kids about 10 and a half years ago, maybe a little longer than that now. And um, when we moved in, we knew that part of our fence was actually not on our property. There was a piece of property between our house and the neighbor's house that was actually owned by the neighborhood. And the people that lived in the house before us had built the fence onto property that we didn't own. So we knew at some point this was going to be a problem for us, but we just kind of chose to ignore it for a little while. And then eventually the Neighborhood Association came to us and said, you're going to have to move this fence because we're actually going to put a trailhead in right beside your house to go down to this trail that's around the neighborhood. Uh, so I waited as long as I could um, to actually say that I was going to do this work because uh, I didn't really want to do it, if I'm honest. And the neighborhood finally came back to me and said, you know what, we're just going to do it for you. We're going to tear down the fence that's there, and we're going to put up a new fence for you. It's not going to cost you anything. We're just going to do it for you as a part of this overall project. And that was, that was very cool of them. Um, the only cool thing a neighborhood association has ever done. And then, <laughs> and then, so I'm out talking to these guys that are building the fence, and I'm like, hey, when you're done, uh, any leftover lumber you have, can I have it? Can you just throw it over into my yard, and I'll use it for something. And so they did. And so I ended up building this really awesome two-story fort for my girls in the backyard. It was incredible. After I built it, I found out girls don't like forts. But <laughs> it was this really cool two-story fort that was, just looked kind of jacked up because it was made with leftover lumber and leftover fencing and all this other stuff. And so I spent this entire Saturday. My wife's a CPA, and so during tax season, she works on Saturdays a lot. And so I spent this entire Saturday like just out just building this fort. And she came home, and uh, I brought her out on the back deck, and I was like, look at this fort. It's awesome. And she looked at it, and she said, the bottom floor is not level. I was like, what are you talking about? It is level. I built it. Of course it's level. <laughs> and so uh, I took my level, and I went down there, and I set it on there, and it was leaning a good two inches. I can't tell you how that happened. I just know that it did. Um, the point being, what I had built was not true. It was not level. It was not what it should have been. And it was immediately obvious that it was not so. I was so wrapped up in it, I didn't even catch it. And so God holds a plumb line up next to his people, and they are found lacking. They are not true or perfectly upright. The plumb line that God holds up is the covenant that he has made with his people because he redeemed them and set them apart as his own. The plumb line is the, the law, the Ten Commandments, the expectations on how they would live in light of the fact that God created them and saved them and redeemed them and rescued them and set them apart as his people. And so God holds up this plumb line in verses 8 through 9. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. God's words at the end of verse 8 are utterly devastating. He says, I will never again pass by them. It's devastating. J.A. Moyer, in a commentary he wrote on Amos, says that this idiom, I will never pass by them, should be understood as God saying, I will never again pass forgive them. And that is so heavy and so overwhelming and so far worse than the physical destruction of the first two visions. Instead of bringing 
mere physical destruction. God is withholding his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness for his people. And he's well within his right to do so. But how terrible is that judgment? It's utterly terrifying. In verses 10 through 17, we have the only narrative break in the book of Amos. And it serves to reinforce the vision of the plumb line. Amos was probably prophesying around this place called Bethel, this city, which was important in the worship in the northern kingdom. Maybe he was even prophesying in the corrupted temple at Bethel. And this priest who has influence with King Jeroboam doesn't like what Amos is saying, so he sends a message to the king um, saying, Jeroboam said you're going to, I mean, Amos said you're going to die by the sword. That's not really what Amos said, but that's the, the message he sends. And then he comes to Amos and he says this, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Right, in these verses he's telling Amos, go home, be a prophet back where you came from. Don't be a prophet here. If you go home to Judah and prophesy against the northern kingdom, they're going to love it and they're going to support you and you'll be able to live and and make money and eat there. He's probably being derogatory in what he's saying as well. And Amos, in turn, says, look, I, I'm not a professional prophet. I'm a shepherd and a farmer, and God called me to this task. So, so it doesn't really matter what you're saying. It's God that brought me here. And then this chapter closes with those incredibly difficult words that we heard where Amos says, you say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with the measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. Now, where is all that coming from? Why, does it have, why do we have to escalate right there? Obviously, this priest, when the plumb line is held up against him, is not true and not upright. And for one, he should have never been a priest, right? The whole priesthood and the temple and the way of worship was illegitimate and not what God had prescribed. It's not what God intended. It's not even where God intended. This priest obviously had nothing to say about the injustice and oppression and idolatry and failure of God's people to abide by the covenant that God made. He had led these people in the wrong direction. He was a, a, a false prophet, if you will, a false priest. And finally, he should have known his failure in these areas would lead to the predictable outcome that Amos is speaking of, God's judgment. I told you earlier about me building a fort in my backyard. Around the same time, I built this big swing set. And uh, one day I had the girls outside with me and I was doing something on the swing set. I can't remember what, but I was standing on top of a ladder um, using a hammer. And I climbed down the ladder, and I just set the hammer on the top of the ladder, which is not a good idea. Um, and so a few minutes later, uh, I snatched that ladder to move it to another place to do something else. And that hammer fell off and hit me in the head. And uh, I went full-on Hulk on the ladder. Like, 
threw it across the yard and kicked it and then threw it again and then threw it over the fence and just, right, because it's the latter's fault. Um, it's obviously not my fault. But the fact of the matter is, by the way, last week I told you to ask, to t- ask my girls about a story I told you last week. They will tell you this story as well, and they will make far more fun of me than I just made fun of me. Um, but the point of the story being, everybody knows you don't put a hammer on the top of the ladder for the very reason. I should have known what was going to happen. As soon as I move that ladder, the hammer's going to fall and hit me on the head. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is laying out for his people the blessings and the curses that will come by living in light of God's redemption, by being people of the covenant. And virtually everything that Amos says to this priest, all the terrible things that's going to happen, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, God lays these things out for his people. Deuteronomy 28, you see the blessings and the curses. And verses 15 through 68 of Deuteronomy 28 are all about the curses that come from abandoning the covenant that God has made with you. It's not pretty. It's terrible. But a true priest, an upright priest, would have known that. And this guy, Amaziah, serving as a representative of the people of the northern kingdom, he gets a terrible sentence handed down to him. And what happens to him is representative of what the entire northern kingdom will experience because the plumb line has been held up to them. And they're not upright according to what God has called them to be. And so with all that said, with all this heaviness, with all of this terrifying stuff that we've seen in Amos and in Amos chapter 7, what do we take away? What do we walk away from here with? Well, number one is this. God's people, those who call themselves by God's name, well, we should expect to be tested and judged just like God's people were in Amos chapter 7. We should expect that. Number two, our only hope in that testing is found in God's redeeming love through the person of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, I think it illustrates the fact that we should expect to be tested and judged. But Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is teaching his disciples about how they should live in light of the fact that he will one day return. So how should you live in the light of the fact that I am leaving and I will one day return? And we see this in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit down on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. And he goes on to say this. To the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. But to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
There's a lot to this passage, and it raises some questions, and it might even raise some doubts. That's not the point. But what I want us to see is that Jesus himself is saying that those people who call themselves by his name will at some point be judged. And it's Jesus who's going to be doing it. The unfortunate reality is that those who call themselves by Jesus' name, but who aren't really his people, well, there's some suffering that's going to happen. And this isn't meant to cause anyone to question their salvation or security. That's not the purpose of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Jesus will do to his people what God does to his people in Amos 7. There's a testing There's a judgment coming. And so what is our only hope? And that's the second thing we need to take away, that our only hope in that testing is found in God's redeeming love through the person of Jesus. And this truth is absolutely stunning. It's the furthest thing from better rule-keeping. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our only hope when a time of judgment comes is that we are counted as righteous before God because of Jesus. Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To endure the punishment in our place. To provide a perfect righteousness in our place. To satisfy a debt that we could not pay. To to satisfy God's justice. And so, for us to have a right standing with God, our sin must be perfectly dealt with. And God's law must be perfectly obeyed. And that's why Jesus was here. That's why Jesus walked on this earth. To perfectly obey and to perfectly die for our sins. And to live for our righteousness. Which means that our justification is not based on what we do. Our justification is based on a work totally outside of ourselves. That's the great wonder of it all, right? That getting right with God doesn't involve the efforts that we think it does. It's a work totally based outside ourselves, performed by another, completed by Jesus. Jesus lived and died as a substitute for us before we were ever born. And the foundation for our right standing before God is with Jesus and with Jesus alone. But if you look at verse 10 in Ephesians 2, it says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So part of why we're redeemed is that we would be set apart as a people like God's people in Amos should have been to be a blessing to the nations. Just like God redeemed his people from Egypt to reflect his glory in the way they live and to be a blessing to the nations, God has redeemed us. God has redeemed his people through Jesus for his glory and for his purposes. God has redeemed us by the death and resurrection of Jesus to be his people who are set apart to proclaim the excellencies of the one who redeemed us. That's the bigger story here that ties us together with Amos 7, the thread that runs throughout Scripture. Our God is a God who redeems. 
And ultimately, that redemption is seen in the person and the work of Jesus. But that redemption means that our whole lives are to be lived in response to what God has done for us. To be a blessing to others by both proclaiming His excellencies, and living with others in a way that brings glory to God and exemplifies that redemption. That's why we as believers are to be a people who proclaim the excellencies of God, who celebrate His grace, who constantly talk about that grace, who constantly worship Christ because of what He's done for us. It's why we are to be a people that are active in the world to see the gospel advance, to see people come to know Christ. It's why we should be active in the world to see the gospel advance to dark areas where idolatry happens, where injustice happens. And so that instead of the worship of these other things, people come to worship Jesus, that they might have a right standing with God as well. And so what do we do? Well, let's start with this. Let's make sure we're clinging to Jesus. Not to our works, not to our religion, not to anything else. Let's make sure we're clinging to to Jesus. The people in the book of Amos would have been surprised, they were surprised to hear that their religion wasn't enough. They were idolatrous. They worshiped in a way that was not God honoring. They heaped injustice and oppression upon themselves. They thought they didn't matter. But us, let's make sure we're clinging to Jesus. Not on what we think matters but on what actually does matter. Let's cling to Jesus. Let's cling to what Jesus has done for us. Let's celebrate that. Let's worship in response to that. Let's make sure that we're praying and interceding for those in danger of God's judgment apart from Jesus, just like Amos did. The first two visions in this book, when Amos sees these visions of destruction, he intercedes on behalf of the people. Let's be that kind of people who pray for those in danger of God's judgment apart from the work of Jesus. We know that God has provided a way for us to be right with Him and to stand before Him through Jesus. That's the most important thing. That's the most important news we could give anyone. Let's be praying, interceding for those in danger of God's judgment. And then let's keep telling the story of what God has done for us. When Amaziah comes to Amos and says, go back home, Amos says, This is what God has done for me. God called me here, not you. Let's talk like that. Let's talk about what God has done for us. Let's talk about God's grace. Let's talk about God's redemption. Let's repeat that story. Let's tell that story to one another. Let's tell that story to anyone who will listen that God brings our way. Let's let's make sure that we're clinging to Jesus. Let's make sure that we are praying for those in danger of God's judgment apart from Jesus. And let's make sure we're talking about God's redemption and repeating the story and telling it to one another and telling it to anybody that God would have us talk to about it. Amos chapter 7 is an incredibly difficult chapter. It's hard things to hear. But ultimately, I believe that Amos chapter 7, like most of the minor prophets do, or let me rephrase that, like all of the minor prophets do, I think they point us directly to Jesus. The grace that he has for us, the grace that he has for those who would come to him. So let's cling to Jesus. We're going to enter into a time of response. Um, I would invite you to do a couple of things during this time of response. For one, 
We're going to have an opportunity to sing. The band will come back and lead us, and we have an opportunity to worship by singing. Uh, we have an opportunity to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back, um, which also has some other ways to give uh, as well. We have an opportunity to worship by responding to what God is speaking to our hearts and minds, by spending a few minutes praying, reflecting, hearing from God in these moments. We have an opportunity to worship by taking communion. We take communion every Sunday here at Redemption as a way to remember what God has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe that it's good and true, that the gospel is real. And so I would invite you to come down these um, side aisles here, take off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And like I said, the reason we're doing that is, is to remember and to proclaim how good this great gospel is. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on with that. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Amos 7. Despite how difficult these things might be to hear. God, thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you have been at work. God, thank you for the work of Jesus to set apart a people for your glory, for your purposes. And God, even now, as we, um, as we continue to worship, as we reflect, I pray that we would reflect upon Christ, what he has done for us, that Jesus would be lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. God, thank you for the incredible gift of your son that gives us a way to be right with you. Thank you for the gift of your son who perfectly obeyed and lived and perfectly died in our place. God, I pray now that you would lead us to respond to those things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.